my dear brethren and sisters and young people. In commencing our study of the 19th chapter of the first of Samuel, we're going to find the unfolding of a very highly dramatic narrative. And once again we are going to see the interaction between the three main characters in our narrative. King Saul, his son Jonathan, and the young man David. And in this 19th chapter it will be most noticeable to us the way in which there is a further marked deterioration in the mental instability of Saul. We see further evidence and growing evidence of Saul's spiritual and mental decline. And this does very often happen with this disease which we describe as melancholia. It is a medical condition. Very often it is self-inflicted as it was in the case of Saul. And so we may recall that initially Saul had allowed thoughts of envy and jealousy to dominate him. And that is very often the beginning point of trouble within the body of Christ, within the ecclesia, with brethren developing these feelings toward one another which should not be there. And so Saul allowed these feelings of envy and jealousy to develop within him. Remember when he heard all the women singing the song that they made up that Saul had slain his thousands but David his tens of thousands and he completely misread their joy and their happiness at the great victory over the Philistines and he concluded that they were putting him down as we would say today and elevating David above him and with thoughts in his mind that Samuel had said to him that Yahweh shall rend the kingdom away from thee this day and give it to a neighbour of thine that is better than thou Saul became from that moment on a very suspicious man and looked at everyone sideways to see if they had evil intent to wrest the throne from him. And with those thoughts developing in his mind as we have seen in recent studies we found that it had its outworking in a fit of uncontrolled rage when he made attempts on David's life violently and from that point he assigned David to what we might call dangerous adventures in the army, with a position in the army, no doubt in the hope that he would get himself killed in going out to war, particularly against the Philistines. Now we're going to find in chapter 19 that he goes even further, because here in the opening words of the chapter, he quite openly declares his intentions toward David. In other words, no longer is he nursing his enmity within his dark and evil and degenerate heart. And it's very interesting to consider that here is Saul speaking quite openly in verse 1, that Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. So he brings it right out into the open without anything hidden any further. And you know, it's a very tragic thing, isn't it? to see the decline of a man in the truth. And although we may think to ourselves, well, Saul had not really been any different. There had been odd times when he had been different. And whatever happens, we never ever want to lose sight in a consideration of the life of Saul. Of those words that we emphasised, I think last year sometime, back in chapter 10 and verse 26, where we learnt that Yahweh did everything he possibly could to try and see 
that Saul was educated in the truth, that he became a man of the spirit and a man of the word. And there is that wonderful little verse tucked away in the first of Samuel chapter 10 and in verse 26, where after he had been anointed king, it tells us that Saul also went home to Gibeah. And there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. I think that's one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture, really, because, you see, it's this bringing home the lesson that God does not desire the death or the perishing of any of his servants, of any of his people. He doesn't see, for that matter, desire to see the death of any man or any woman. And that's why the Word, the Bible, is the most circulated book, the most widely known book in the whole of the world. And yet how few take any notice of it. But in the case of Saul in particular, God was not going to adopt an attitude of saying, well, I'm going to give you the sort of king you want. I know what you want. You've asked for a king like all the Gentiles have. Someone you can look up to. Someone you can honour. Someone you can bow down to. Someone who in effect you can worship rather than me. God was aware of that and he acknowledged that to Samuel. And he could have very well said, well, if that's what you want, I'll give you what you want. But then I'll just wash my hands of the whole thing and then sit back and you'll see what happens. Thankfully our God is not that kind of a God. And so therefore while he gave them the sort of king they wanted, he was determined to make every attempt to try and make something out of that king and not just leave him to his own resources. And in view of the fact that there is no record of anyone in that family of Saul being spiritually minded, or being, uh, in any sense, active ecclesial members, we would say, or showing any great interest in the truth, we do believe that when God sent those men whose hearts he had touched, it was for the purpose of trying to educate Saul in the truth and to prepare him for the great responsibility that he would bear as king. And it is our belief that since there's no record of anyone in the family being spiritually inclined, that although Saul did not hear those men, whose hearts God had touched, Jonathan did. And that is where Jonathan learned his love for the truth from those men who went with them and returned with them to Gibeah. And so what we're looking at here is the decline of a man in the truth. That is a tragic and it is a terrible thing to see. We've got a man here who was really consumed by hatred and jealousy and bitterness growing deeper and stronger and more rooted within him with every passing day. And he refuses to turn back to the spirit of the truth which God had endeavoured to sow within his heart and to prepare him for his rulership and above all else to prepare him for an eternal inheritance in the kingdom that is yet to come. But in every move he makes, every step he takes, he goes further and further away from the only influence that could have helped him, which is, of course, the word of truth and an appeal to Yahweh through the exercise of prayer. Now, that is Saul as we have him here in verse 1. Now, with a hand in there, come with me to Psalm 139 and see the character of David, which was exactly the opposite of that displayed by Saul. Saul, locked within himself, the darkness of his own mind, turned inward upon himself, 
thinking, how can I do this? How can I achieve that? How can I bring this about? I, I, I. Here we find David showing an entirely different spirit in Psalm 139 and in verse 23 and 24. He prays to his God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, they're beautiful words and they really ought to be underlined in everyone's Bible. Someone should have something about those two verses to draw attention to it any time we turn over our Bibles and we come to that psalm and we come to those verses because they really are magnificent verses. They set, they set a, 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 a tone, they set a, a, a disposition that should be borne by every one of us. In our prayers to the Father, ask Him to search us. Ask Him to know our heart. Whereas Saul was trying to hide it away. He didn't want God to know his heart. He didn't want God to search him. He wasn't interested in that at all. He was interested in trying to achieve what he wanted by his own means. But David prayed, try me and know my thoughts. And then he appealed for Yahweh for correction, even if it might mean personal hurt or some form of punishment or chastising. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now there is the difference between the character of David and the character of Saul. And so here in this first verse of chapter 19 we find that Saul speaks to Jonathan and his servants in this way. And he told them quite openly that it really was time that something was done about David and that he should be killed. And no doubt, more than simply making a statement that's recorded here that they should kill David, he would have had to have established some kind of a case. No doubt he accused David of disloyalty, which would have been untrue. He would have accused him of treason, which also would have been untrue. He probably accused David of plotting to try and seize the throne, which also was quite untrue. And no doubt he told Jonathan and all his servants that their own positions would continue to remain in danger as long as David remained alive. You see how his mind was working? His mind was working purely along the lines which are dictated by flesh. There was nothing spiritual in that whatever. Nothing designed for the glory of God, for the betterment of the people of Israel, for the welfare of the kingdom. So he was not only defying the principles of the truth in his own life, but he was undermining the influence of the truth in the lives of others. That's the, that's the powerful message of verse 1. Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. And he sows this very strong anti-David sentiment that David has got to be removed, he's got to be got rid of. They're all endangered until that is brought about. All totally wrong completely contrary to the spirit of the truth, the principles of the truth, the ideals of the truth. And here is David, an innocent man, 
innocent of all these things. And you know, brethren and sisters, it is one thing for a man to defy the principles of the truth in his own life. I dare say we all have the freedom of action to do that if we are so foolish as to follow a line of action like that. But it is one thing to do that in our own lives, but it's another thing altogether to undermine the influence in the truth, the influence of the truth in the lives of others. What a powerful lesson there is there. Always we should be intent upon setting the very best example despite our own weaknesses and our own failings to which we are all subject. We should be doing everything we can to encourage our brethren and sisters and the young people in our ecclesia to see the right way in the spirit of Psalm 139 verse 23 and 24 that we just looked at. We should be trying to do that and not the opposite of it. And needless to say, Jonathan would have been utterly appalled and horrified to hear his father speak in this way. And so you see, Saul was guilty of this dreadful sin. But now, in these words in verse 1 and 2, we find that Saul is now intent upon making Jonathan a partaker of his own evil deed. Jonathan is the first one that he must, must try to win over. And what a difficult situation Jonathan was in. Imagine his grief of feeling that would know no bounds when he heard his father speak in this way. So the question was, would Jonathan yield to the pressure of worldly, fleshly self-interest as his father was suggesting? Or would he submit to the influence of the truth well, we know that there was no doubt as to what Jonathan would do. And yet at the same time, let us appreciate the difficulty in which he found himself. While he knew he must hold the truth, while he knew he must remain loyal to David, because David was anointed to be the next king over Israel, and David was his friend and his brother in the truth, their souls were knit together because of their mutual love and reverence for Yahweh and for his word. And with all that, Jonathan had to very carefully see that he did not betray his own father. You see how difficult that all was. And throughout David's, Jonathan's life, from this point right to the end, it is one of the wonderful characteristics of Jonathan's life that although he remained totally loyal to David and he remained totally committed to the principles of the truth yet he did not betray his father it's a very wonderful thing to see a character like Jonathan emerging in these circumstances in this narrative in the scripture that's why verse 2 tells us that Jonathan, Saul's son delighted much in David and Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now therefore I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning, and abide in a secret place, and hide thyself. The opening words are very, very important in this verse. Jonathan delighted much in David. 
And the Hebrew word rendered delighted, a word called fetis, is a word which means to incline toward or to even bend toward, to be favourably disposed toward. Hence it's rendering as delighted. Do you know something about that word? The same word occurs in chapter 18 and verse 22. The same word. Remember there, on the other side of our page, when Saul commanded, when he wanted to win David over, Saul commanded his servants, saying, Commune with David secretly, and say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee. The king hath delight in thee. Go and tell him. Make sure he understands that. That it was a lie. So when the word occurs in chapter 18 and verse 22, it is a lie. But when it occurs in chapter 19 and verse 2 of Jonathan's disposition, that was the truth. Jonathan was generously, favourably disposed toward David. And so therefore, can you see what is developing here? Because it really is a tragic drama. Not just a drama, it is a tragic drama. Because if Jonathan is inclined toward David, favourably disposed in a very strong way toward David, whereas his father is going in the opposite direction, you see the effect that it is having, that spiritually Jonathan would have had to incline away from his father. And in view of Saul's disposition, that was unavoidable. We might say, well, whose fault was it? That father and son found themselves at odds. Whose fault was it? Would we dare to say that Jonathan should under no circumstances have allowed anything at all to come between himself and his father? Should we have followed the Gentile dictum that blood is thicker than water and that nothing is more important in this life than family? We've already made the point that Jonathan did not openly turn against his father or betray him in any way. But nevertheless, on the plane of spiritual values, they were at odds and they were going in different directions. But you know, in this regard, Jonathan displayed exactly the mind of the Spirit. We've already made reference to this word, Corphates. Jonathan delighted much in David. If you make a note of the second of Samuel, chapter 22 and verse 20, and also Psalm 18, verse 19 and 20, you will find that this same word is used to describe Yahweh's leanings toward David. So in other words, Jonathan's attitude was exactly in harmony with that of Yahweh. Whereas as we've seen from chapter 18 and verse 22, Saul's protestations of delight was hypocrisy and it was a lie. So you see, father and son are now placed at cross purposes. And in that regard we should remind ourselves that the truth and the power of the word of God will become either a unifier 
or a divider. <coughs> Yahweh has claimed that it should be a unifier. And we know the things written in the word concerning the need for the oneness of the body of Christ. That the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of thee, nor the ear to the nose, I have no need of thee, or so forth. That the body of believers are to be one body. That is how Yahweh has designed his word. But nevertheless, while it is designed to be a unifier, and it will be, where people speak the same things and hold the same values and defend the same principles of Yahweh's righteousness, where that does not happen, as in the case of Saul and Jonathan, the word becomes a divider. It's not designed to do that. But it becomes that when men turn against it and the principles for life that it reveals. That is the state that we are faced with here. And so Jonathan goes to David and tells him the situation there in verse 2. That would require a deal of courage on Jonathan's part. And it illustrates poor Jonathan's conflict of loyalties and yet there was no real conflict in the literal sense of the term but we understand the difficult position in which he found himself he knew that his spiritual mind and his spiritual mindedness demanded that Yahweh's justice and mercy be performed and in that regard as David, as Jonathan now goes off to meet David and to convey these thoughts to him perhaps we should be reminded that true friendships will be strengthened by adversity and not weakened. It is when a, a friendship is very superficial and of no real value that adversity will cause men to divide from each other for their own personal self-interest. But when there is real friendship, where there is real warmth and association and oneness of mind in the truth, adversity will draw brethren closer together instead of separating. Very wonderful point that comes out of verse 2. So he says to David, Take heed to thyself until the morning. In actual fact it should be rendered as in the Jerusalem Bible. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Because Saul, as we shall see in a little while, has already laid the plans that David is to be captured and taken the following morning and to be put to death. So in verse 3, Jonathan tells David what his plan is. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art, and I will commune with my father of thee, and what I see, that I will tell thee. So it is here arranged between David and Jonathan that David should get away and that he should hide himself in a predetermined field to which Jonathan would... Uh, of which Jonathan would be aware, and to which he would bring his father. And there Jonathan would plead with his father, with Saul, for David's life, to try and get Saul to change his mind on this matter. And uh, if David should be uh, uh, well placed to overhear the conversation, so much the better. Otherwise, Jonathan would take the news to him. So in verse 4, we learn that Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father, and said unto him, let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee would very good. 
Now this again took courage because though there is no evidence of Jonathan using any disrespect toward his father or trying to overrule his father or stand over his father yet he's very, very firm, isn't he? Probably very kind but very firm. And here is Jonathan the one who had the most to lose through keeping David alive so far as the flesh was concerned and yet wholeheartedly extolling David's virtues to Saul because that was the will of God and if it was the will of God it was the will of Jonathan what a wonderful character he was and what does he say to his father not simply don't put David to death he says let not the king sin against David you know what he's doing he's reminding him of the teaching of the law which comes out in the next verse wilt thou sin against innocent blood and that's a reference to Deuteronomy 19 and verse 10 which said that innocent blood was not to be shed in the land and incidentally Deuteronomy 19 and verse 10 applied to the Lord Jesus Christ and so what does Jonathan do? while Saul is busy working things out in his own mind Jonathan appeals to the word of God and he says listen father wilt thou sin against innocent blood will you act in defiance of Yahweh's law of Deuteronomy 19 and verse 10 and so he tried to win his father which is the right way to always try and accomplish something he didn't confront his father in a very belligerent or forthright way and you know there's a proverb that covers that that's well worth noting against verse 4 Proverbs 11 and verse 30 very beautiful little proverb it says he that winneth souls is wise you know that the word souls means life so it can be rendered he that winneth lives is wise in other words it is better to win someone for the truth than it is to confront them in a belligerent way so that they are alienated both from you and possibly even the truth and so Jonathan's reminded Saul now of David's faithfulness here in verse 5 and his exploits of faith and valour and none of the things that David had ever done had been designed to elevate David let alone elevate him above Saul that everything that David had done had been in the course of his service to Saul and of course his service to Yahweh and Jonathan points out that David's loyalty to Saul was absolutely unquestioned and Jonathan must have made a very appealing and heart-rendering dissertation to his father because we find in verse 6 that Saul is swayed by what Jonathan says and in verse 6 it tells us that Saul hearkened under the voice of Jonathan and Saul swear as Yahweh liveth he shall not be slain now that sounds marvellous doesn't it but remember this Saul was moved by Jonathan's speech but he was not moved 
by the word. Is it unjust to say that? I don't believe so. I don't believe that he was listening to Deuteronomy 19 verse 10. I believe that he was moved by the emotion of the the moment, of the emotion in Jonathan's appeal. And the reason for that conclusion is because it became yet another oath. Remember, he's giving an oath here. It becomes yet another oath that he reneges upon and that he goes back on. Another promise that he broke. And so in the truth, brethren and sisters and young people, there's not much point in being moved purely by the emotion of the moment and being taken to great lofty heights of thinking that we're becoming very, very spiritual all of a sudden. We have to be moved by the word and the power of the word. And to that just let me add that there is nothing wrong with being emotional about the truth. In fact, I think it's a very good thing to feel emotional about the truth at times. There are times when the truth does that to us. It can have a very, very strong emotional impact upon us. It can bring us to tears, particularly when we weigh up our own shortcomings and our own failings and then read the wonderful things of the Word, read our way through the Psalms, the tragic lives of men like David, the wonderful lives, the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, men like Paul. The Word can bring us to tears. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being emotional about the truth, providing the emotions never take control of the intellect. That is something we need always remember. Because above all else, the truth must be respected, it must be revered, it must be acted upon from the point of view of its influence upon the intellect, upon the mind of the spirit developing within us, and not merely upon the emotion. If through our intellectual understanding of the word, we find that we have moments when we become very emotional about the truth, don't ever be afraid of that. There's nothing wrong with that. But if any of us ever reach a stage where an emotional situation becomes so great that the emotion of the situation takes control over the intellect, then we're in very, very serious trouble. That must not happen. So Jonathan here is very, very deeply relieved. Here in verse 6, Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swear, as Yahweh liveth, he shall not be slain. Oh, can you imagine Jonathan's reaction? I have got through to him. And Jonathan, in the honesty of his own heart and his own mind, thinks and feels, I have actually reached my father. I've got him to see what's right. And he's not aware of the fact that it is merely the emotion of the moment. And so, in this situation, and with this apparent reconciliation blooming, verse 7 tells us that Jonathan called David, and Jonathan showed him all those things, tells him everything about the whole conversation, what he has said to his father, how his father had stood there silently and listened to everything he'd said, how that he brought in the principle of Deuteronomy 19 and verse 10 and dealt with the aspect of God's law and how important it was that innocent blood should not be shed and that David was an innocent man. Imagine him pouring all this out to David then saying, now come, come, 
Come to me, come with me to my father to Saul and all will be well and we will be reconciled. So Jonathan determined to bring about reconciliation on, on the spot, there and then. And so verse 7 says that Jonathan called David and Jonathan showed him all those things and Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past. That is of course in Saul's presence. And the relationship may have existed in this way for a short time but it could not possibly last because of Saul's failure to humble himself before his God and to walk in the way of the truth. You see, nowhere here does it ever say that Saul adopted a humble disposition toward the truth, that he sought forgiveness from Yahweh for his past attitude toward David and the wrongness of his actions and his motives. There's nothing of that said there at all. The next thing we read in verse 8 is that we're back to war again. Verse 8 says, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter, and they fled from him. So, this is a resumption of the hostilities that have been referred to in chapter 18 and verse 30. So once again, David becomes what we might describe as a national hero. He has victory after victory, which are very, very impressive. But instead of Saul appreciating the courage and the faithfulness and the loyalty of his servant David, all David's victories do is to generate deeper and deeper bitterness in the mind of Saul. What a tragic figure he was. And so verse 9 tells us that the evil spirit from Yahweh was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand and David played with his hand. The evil spirit from Yahweh was upon Saul. And we explained that, did we not, when dealing with the previous chapter. And this evil spirit developed within him because with David's great victories on the field of battle, Saul would, Saul would once again be hearing glowing reports concerning David's wonderful prowess as a warrior and his courage in battle and the fineness of his character. And so in a rising tide of envy and jealousy and fear, Saul forgot his oath of peace and goodwill toward David that had been expressed in verse 6. And here he is sitting there with a javelin in his hand, just like the previous situation. The Jerusalem Bible renders it, he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. David was playing the harp. There's David sitting there, innocent, totally unaware of the great danger in which he is now placed. And so verse 10, And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with a javelin or the spear. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence and he smote the javelin into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. A repetition, exactly, of that which is described in chapter 18, and verse 11. Saul allowing himself to become so engrossed within himself and his own fears for self-preservation that again he dissolves into an uncontrollable rage. But he does not achieve his objective. He can't achieve his objective. 
Because Yahweh has stated categorically that David is to be the next king over Israel. So you see it says that David slipped away out of Saul's presence. No doubt David had very fast reflexes as one would expect of, a, of an outstanding soldier with outstanding ability in the field of battle. But there's something more important than David's reflexes and that was that God was with him. That's something that we never ever need to forget. We must never forget that. God was with him. Let's just for a moment go to Psalm 34 and let's just see uh, in regard to this incident which was to come a little later in David's life when he finds himself in the cave of the Dullam and the men are disenchanted at the rulership of Saul as they watch their country go down the drain and the Philistines everywhere gaining the ascendancy throughout the, the land and they come to this cave because they hear that David is there and they're disorganised and they're bewildered and they're puzzled and they're fearful at what is going to happen. And David says to them in the psalm, as you will know, he says in verse 11, Come ye children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. This poor man cried, and Yahweh heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. And that's what's happened to David in chapter 19 of the first of Samuel and in verse 10. He slipped away out of Saul's presence. We certainly admire David's quickness, but we admire more the fact that the angel of Yahweh encampeth round about them that fear him, and more than that, and delivereth them. Now if there's a verse in scripture that will make us pray to our Heavenly Father, whether times are good or whether they are bad, it is that verse. It is an awareness of the fact that the angels of Yahweh are ever with us. That they are there to act as our representatives and our helpers. That doesn't mean that everything is always going to go smoothly in our life and the truth, as we shall see a little bit later on in the case of David. It is through suffering and trial and persecution and through our faith being put under pressure that our characters are developed and moulded for the kingdom. But nevertheless, there is Yahweh and there is his presence. God was with him and God will be with us too through his angels. And so it says in this 10th verse that David fled and escaped that night and so it is now darkness. The day is gone, whatever day this is. David was a great warrior, certainly, but he knew when to withdraw. David fled and escaped that night. We might say, well, why didn't he stay and have the matter out with Saul there and then? It wasn't a wise thing to do at that time. Saul was not a man to be reasoned with in that condition of mind, in that state of mind. So David showed wisdom. But in the warfare of faith, we have to learn to exercise wisdom. And in verse 11, we're going to see that there is a relationship here with Psalm 59. And we believe that Psalm 59 was written probably that night, or written concerning that night shortly afterwards. 
one of the great scholars who has, in the last century anyway, did do a lot of work on the Psalms was uh, a scholar by the name of Delich. And concerning Psalm 59, at first Psalm 59, Delich said that it is perhaps the oldest of the Davidic Psalms that have come down to us. Perhaps the oldest of the Davidic Psalms that have come down to us. And in verse 11 we'll see that it states that Saul sent messengers to watch him and to slay him. What he did was to send men to surround that house and to take him and to murder him in cold blood. That was the intention. Now keeping a hand in first of Samuel there, let's come to Psalm 59 and you'll notice how in many of the Psalms we're supplied by headings for the Psalms which incidentally are very, very ancient. They go back a long, long way basically connected with the Septuagint which although it's not altogether accurate is certainly the oldest translation of the Bible extant dating back 300, 400 years before Christ. Many of these headings are taken from the Septuagint and in association with some of the Septuagint versions. And you'll notice at the beginning of the psalm, do you notice there where it says, Al-Tastic, Miktam of David, when Saul sent and they watched the house to kill him. Now that pinpoints Psalm 59 on the very night that we're faced with here in the first of Samuel chapter 19 and verse 11. And if you want to put a hitting on that psalm, which is a very uh, apt description for what is contained in Psalm 59. I have a heading for this psalm and it is simply this. Trust triumphs over trouble. Three T's. Trust triumphs over trouble. That's the message of that psalm, which we really don't have the time to, to look at tonight, but we just like to read the first few verses. Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from men of blood. In this case, men out to shed blood. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul, for my life. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Yahweh. Not because of what I've done. I'm not guilty for what they're trying to do to me. Verse 4, they run and prepare themselves without my fault, awake to help me and behold. Now you see, there is the mind of David under those circumstances. That's his mind. And that's the way his mind worked under those circumstances. We could go through and read some of the other verses as well because they're all applicable. There's one point I would like you to note in verse 6 because we're going to have a question in a moment and I believe that here is the answer. Notice in verse 6, they return at evening, which of course is exactly what they did, they make a noise like a dog. In other words, they don't care who hears them. They're so self-confident in what they're out to do, to surround that house and in the morning when he comes out to take David and to kill him, they're so self-confident, self-assured, that they make all the noise about the place and they don't care who hears. Alright, well now let's go back to the first of Samuel chapter 19 and find what happens here in verse 11. Saul also sent messengers unto David's house. Actually, it's rather interesting in this word messengers here. The word is malak, which we know does 
signify messengers. But it's very interesting that in the Jerusalem Bible, no doubt picking up the concept of what sort of men these were and how utterly ruthless and immoral they were, the Jerusalem Bible translates the word as agents, which is not really out of order. Although they were messengers, they were agents of murder. They were sort of like murder incorporated. And they acted like a, a crowd of belligerent gangsters when they came to David's house. So verse 11 tells us that Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. That's what she says to him. If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow will be too late, you'll be dead. Now how did she know that they were surrounding the house in the darkness of night? Well that Psalm 59 and that 6th verse gives us the answer. They didn't care how much noise they made and she became aware, knowing that it was a dangerous situation, she became aware of what was happening. Psalm 59 and verse 7 says that they belch out with their mouth. In other words, they were loud-mouthed and they were swaggering about what they were doing. So, Michal, who was certainly no fool, the daughter of Saul, she gave David on this instance wise and sound advice. And so, in effect, she saves David's life. And what actually happens to Saul is that he keeps on reaping the reward of his folly. And we're reminded of Psalm 7 and verse 15. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. That was continually Saul's undoing because he never did win in this battle with David which was a very one-sided battle because Saul was doing all the fighting. And then in verse 12 look at the picture that we have here. So Michal let David down through a window and he went and fled and escaped. Why did she let him out through a window? No doubt because all the doors were guarded by Saul's men and there was no way that he could get out that way. But they can't have been sufficiently intelligent to realise that there were other avenues of escape for David. And so here at this point we find that David is let down very, very quietly through a window and he is let out of that house and his life is saved that night but this begins his life of persecution at the hands of Saul. From this moment on David becomes a fugitive. A hunted fugitive. But what about the window? Isn't it remarkable the similarity between David and the Apostle Paul? Because Paul's life of persecution and suffering in the cause of the truth began in exactly the same way. When he first revealed himself to the brethren as a convert to the Lord Jesus Christ and preached mightily the word of God in Damascus, so much so that his enemies, just like the men of Saul here, were out to kill him and to take his life. And the Apostle Paul was saved by the very same means in Acts chapter 9 and at verse 25 and he mentions it specifically again in his second letter to the Corinthians 
In the second of Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 33, he tells of what had taken place at Damascus. And so here is David now as a type of the Apostle Paul. How remarkable that with both of these great men in the history of the truth, their lives of suffering and persecution and the development of their characters for the kingdom begins in the same way. And so he fled and he escaped. But as we've seen from Psalm 59, he shows faith and trust in Yahweh. But while doing that, he also takes appropriate action. And we always have to do the same thing. You know, prayer is an essential element in our life. We can't do without it in the truth. None of us can. Prayer is an essential element of our life in the truth. But prayer does not mean that when we are in difficulty or when we are in trial or when something needs to be done in our lives that we simply pray to God and then sit back and twiddle our thumbs with our eyes closed and wait for miracles to happen all over the place. That doesn't mean that miracles don't happen because they do. They do. If the angel of Yahweh encampeth round about his people and delivereth them, as we believe the psalm is true, then there will be miracles. There will be things that will happen in our lives when we will be relieved of trial or trouble or a situation that we find absolutely impossible and we look back later and we think to ourselves, how did that happen? And we don't know how it happened, but it happened. We've all had those experiences. How remarkable they are. But it doesn't mean that we simply pray to God and then sit back and wait for miraculous relief. We have to be wise, as David was here. We have to act appropriately in any given situation. And so he escaped, as it says in verse 12, because Yahweh was with him. And although David was already described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart, there began now a new phase of development in David's life. He had a very fine character. He was a very fine servant of Yahweh. He was a very faithful man. But now that faith had to be honed. It had to be polished. It had to be moulded and shaped. He had to learn greater wisdom. He had to learn greater self-sacrifice. He had to develop further in the truth. And it would be trial and suffering and pressure and persecution that would hone and refine those characteristics within this great man of faith. Whereas in lesser men, such as Saul, such problems might well have been the end of them. With David as a type of Christ, we see in his life all the suffering and the trial and the persecution that the Lord Jesus Christ was to endure so many generations later. And so in these verses here we find that it is through the application of some sensibility on the part of David's wife that she holds off Saul's men for a short time. In verse 13 it says that Michal took an image and laid it in the bed. The word image in all probability, according to Gersenius, refers to a sculptured head or something of that nature that would be part of an ornament within the home. 
It certainly doesn't refer to uh, any uh, uh, pagan gods that David would have ever had in, in his home. And she put a pillow of goats here for his bolster. That was a very clever move indeed because the word uh, here really signifies more correctly a pillow of goats here for a bolster. Uh, Rotherham renders it a fly net of goats here put she at its head and covered it with the clothes. So it was a kind of a mosquito net as we would use today that would have the effect of making the shape underneath in the bed look rather vague and indistinct. And so she went to all of this trouble and covered it with a cloth. Covered it with clothing is what it means. And so then, when we find that Saul sends the men, verse 14, when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Well, we know that lying can never be justified. In the truth, we never ever adopt or accept the principle that the end justifies the means. And yet at the same time when she said he is sick, we look at that term. And although we don't doubt that she was lying because she didn't really care much whether she did or she didn't, as long as she could give David some kind of a chance, yet in actual fact there was probably more truth in her expression than she realised. We believe that David would have been very, very sick in this trial that put his life right on the line. Just imagine, we know that suffering brings stress and stress can bring ill health and sickness. We know what it's like in the difficulties of life to face a problem or perhaps be faced with a problem that some other brother or sister has and we're brought to share it and we feel a sickness within us because of those circumstances. If we knew that in the darkness of night, which is the very worst time any, anyway in the 24 hours of the day, there's nothing worse than the darkness of night. Are you aware of the fact that far more people die during the hours of darkness than ever die during the hours of daylight? Darkness is associated with death, literally. It's associated with fear. If we wake in the night and we've had for some days or weeks a problem worrying us and disturbing us, it is always far worse in the darkness of night than it is to sit down at, say, three o'clock in the afternoon with a cup of tea and think about the matter then. If we knew that someone was coming in the darkness of night or the very early hours of the morning to kill us, how would we feel? She says he is sick. And sick he certainly would have been. But Saul was not going to be put off. In verse 15, Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. Some versions render it, He sent the agents back. The Jerusalem Bible renders it, Bring him to me on his bed for me to kill him. You couldn't be any more ruthless than that, could you? A man supposedly ill and to be carried on his bed to a place where someone can execute him. That's how determined 
Saul was. And so in verse 16, Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. And when the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster. And in verse 17, Saul said to Michal, Why hast thou deceived me so and sent away mine enemy that is escaped? Notice his tortured mind. Thou hast sent away mine enemy. How warped his mind had become. David was not Saul's enemy and never had been and never would be other than in the tortured mind of Saul himself. And so she answers him and says, He said to me, Let me go or I will kill you. The Jerusalem Bible rendering. Let me go or I will kill you. Which of course was pretty pointless since she'd been the one who let him down out of the window. No doubt she could have let him drop if she'd wanted to. So again she lied. But you see, she could have counted Saul's reference to David as his enemy by turning her back on her father and asking for evidence of such conduct on the part of David. But she was more moved by fear than she was for standing for what is right. And so there was always a necessity for remaining in control. And you know, although it is written in chapter 18 and verse 28 that she loved David, there is never any evidence to suggest that she loved him for his spiritual qualities or his character. He was a mighty warrior. He was a popular hero. He was an attractive man. She was impressionable and somewhat impulsive like her father. But she was not really spiritually minded. There's a lesson there for young people. You know, some say, as long as you marry in the truth, that's all that matters. As long as you marry in the truth, that's all that matters. It's not all that matters. Because anyone who loves the truth deeply should look to marry someone who loves the truth deeply, knowing that they will be able to help one another, that they will be of one mind, knowing that their marriage will be welded together by a force and a power that is greater than mere flesh. And that is why this marriage came unstuck in the sense that after she despised David, as we will read later on, David went no more in unto her and had nothing more to do with her. And this is very, very important, the thing that we're stressing now. It needs to be remembered. It needs to be remembered by those of us who have been married for many, many years. The great lesson that comes out of this. Michal seems to act as a kind of a heroine here, which is certainly correct in a certain point of view. But we need to look deeper. It's like the principle that we just said. As long as you marry in the truth, that's all that matters. It's not all that matters at all. And so you see, in marriage, there are three things upon which a marriage is built. There must be mental compatibility, there must be physical compatibility, and there must be spiritual compatibility. And numerous times in the course of my life, 
in speaking to young married couples who are having some problems in their relationship, I have pointed out to them that our mental compatibility with one another at times will fail because we disagree. We may have a strong disagreement over some issue that will fail. The physical side of the relationship of marriage at times will also fail for a variety of reasons. But the spiritual side of marriage must never fail. And as long as that is held tightly together, the marriage will never fail. Despite what else happens, the marriage will not fail. And of course we know that later on, Saul did a despicable thing when he took this woman who had been married to David and he gave her to Falzi in marriage in chapter 25 and at verse 44. And in that regard, there is no record whatever of her raising any objection about that. And so having come through this part of the drama, we will find that in our next class, the scene changes. David escapes, but now he must find what he must do. And we will learn immediately from verse 18 that wisdom takes over his mind. His faith goes into action in top gear and he goes to exactly the place where he should go. He goes to the presence of Samuel.